The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Jesus. Almighty God, you have shown us such wondrous love, such mercy, such grace. Lord, I can't but come and lift my hands in praise and thanksgiving. Say, Lord, you are the ruler of heaven and earth. Yes. I worship you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I ask that you would unveil our hearts today. Thank you, Lord. I pray in your mighty name. Amen. We're at that portion in the book of Galatians, the third chapter. 
Let me just read for you the scripture today, beginning with verse 20. Galatians, the third chapter, second chapter. Galatians, the second chapter, verse 20 and forward. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now, just very quickly, a couple words we need to be refreshed regarding the meaning. Grace means unmerited favor, yes, but let's go deeper than that. Grace means the divine influence of God for righteousness. We are not made righteous by the law. We are made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ and the divine influence of God that begins to flow into our lives and transform us. We are made righteous. We are justified. And justified again in Scripture does not just have the meaning of pardoning from past sins. It also means to be made new. Now, I'm going to share with you today the actual working out of what this passage in Galatians means in very practical terms for where we live. I trust you will find this comforting on one side and terrifying on the other. Because this is going to open for you a very clear intellectual understanding of the way God is going to move in every one of our lives. And it's not easy. If being crucified were easy, every man and woman would be crucified and gain the kingdom of heaven. It is not by our works. It is by grace. It is by the work of God in our hearts. That does not mean it's easy. And I'm going to take you through a three-step process that is given to us by Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. Now, I love everything Jesus gives us in the Gospels. They're encouraging to my heart. I love the Sermon on the Mount. I read the Sermon on the Mount several times a week. I I live in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? But after the cross, we have the mature Christ. He is now in heaven. He now has a much broader view than he had when he was on this earth. And so he outlines for us, step by step, three steps in the walk with Jesus that must be gone through. You cannot skip one of these, or you will not enter into the kingdom of God. He termed it being born from above. He called it taking up your cross, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. You're following him is this three-step process I'm going to share with you that Jesus outlines as the risen Christ. Now, I also want to say to you that many people have died at one of these steps and lost their way and will not dwell in the heavenly realm. You must complete all three or you cannot be in the heavenly realm with Jesus. I can't think of a more terrifying understanding than that. 
So go with me to Revelation, the third chapter, and I'm going to say very plainly to you today, what I have gained that I will share with you today was not gained by hard study. I awoke last Thursday morning in the early hours And the Holy Spirit began to speak to me, and he laid out what I'm going to share with you. Now, I also need to say I've preached on this passage many times during the 40-plus years I've been a pastor. This is the first time this week that I think I've even begun to understand what it says. And it was not a revelation by study. It was a revelation by the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to take any credit for any of the understanding I'm going to share with you. So if you disagree with it, you talk to Jesus about it. I don't want to hear from you about it. Because if you argue with me on this, I'm just going to say, please go to Jesus, argue with him, not me. Three steps. Now here's the intro. Jesus came with a message to the Apostle John for seven historical, real churches. I'm not going to go into all the historical background of this church. There is a great deal, and you can go study that out, and you can get the information. Just Google Laodicea. It'll give you all the historical data. That's not what I want to do. And I recognize that I could take a number of weeks and work through this very slowly, and at some later date, I will do that, probably on the radio. But today, I just want to cut right to the heart of what he's given me so that you can identify where you are at in this journey. And you can also identify what is yet undone in your life that you must pursue and finish if you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. He opens by saying in verse 15, Revelation 3, verse 15, I know your deeds. Now, that in itself is terrifying because it says that Jesus knows exactly what you did this week. He knows if you fought with your husband or your wife. He knows if there were angry words spoken from your heart, whether they were verbal or not. He knows every evidence of selfishness. He knows every evidence of pride. There is nothing hidden from him. He knows what you did with your time and energy this week. And based on that, he says, I have found that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, some of you are cold and some of you are hot and some of you are lukewarm, depending on where you are in this journey. He says, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. He is obviously speaking to people who claim the name of Jesus. He's saying, I, I know you. I know what you do. You've confessed my name. You claim to be a Christian. Now let's do an examination and see how you measure up. I tell you what, I didn't mind school too much. I was never a fan of school. They always were interested in things I wasn't interested in. I was interested in being out at the creek hunting for crawdads, catching them and going fishing. But the teacher thought I should learn things. Jesus wants us to learn some things. And when he tastes some of his people, he doesn't like the taste. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. 
and do not need a thing. He's not speaking here about money. He's speaking here about character. He's speaking about a level of satisfaction with our life, feeling like we have arrived and we are owed certain things. We are owed a certain level of respect. We are owed a certain level of adoration because look at what we have done. Our lives are successful. A feeling of of comfortableness. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So Jesus is giving the church at Laodicea a sonogram. He is picturing for us the inner part of the soul. And he's saying, look, you need to identify whether this is your condition. Most theologians have a common understanding of the church of Laodicea. And that is that we are in the age of the church of Laodicea today. That the American church typifies Laodicea. Now let's take each of these words and just briefly look at them for the diagnostic work. And then let's go to the three-step process by which this is transformed. The word used here for wretched is the same word used only one other time in Scripture, and that is the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, where Paul said, as a Jewish man trying to observe the law, being unsuccessful in his attempts to walk in righteousness, he says, what a wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the only other place in Scripture this word is used. The word wretched here literally means, it's a combination of two words, it means to be weighed with weights, weighed in the balance and found wanting. In other words, he's saying, you're a lightweight. You have no depth. You're full of yourself. And you're being weighed. And you're not measuring up. And then he's saying, The other part of this word wretched, uh, we've spoken of many times here, meaning to pierce, to pierce with sorrows and troubles, being pierced with the lack of finances, being pierced with relationships that are very painful and difficult, being pierced with all kinds of troubles and trials. So the word wretched here is a combination of Look, you're being weighed in the balance and you're not measuring up. You're in trouble. And then you're being pierced and beat up on every side. And the result is you're wretched. You are outside of the grace of Jesus. You are in your religious beliefs. You call yourself Christians, but you have no evidence of overwhelming victory in your life. And you are swept away time after time after time until finally you have become dulled to the pain, you have become comfortable in your wretchedness, and you've been able to comfort yourself with the thought that in the end everything is going to work out. He's saying you're wretched. Now, he also says you're pitiful. So he's saying when I look at you, it arouses in my heart pity. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like people to pity me. Somehow the idea that I'm to be pitied means that I'm a mess. 
And above all things, I want my act put together. I mean, none of us would like it if the boss came up to us and said, you know what, you're a pitiful mess. We would not like that. That would not be a review that would promise us prosperity in the job in which we were engaged. You know, you're pitiful. And then he says, you're poor. You're broke. You don't have any money. He's not speaking about cash here. He's speaking about riches in Jesus. He's speaking about a depth of understanding and a depth of richness that when you go in the prayer closet, you are praising and worshiping and honoring Jesus alive, on fire, because you know that he delivered you from wretchedness, from not measuring up. You know he delivered you from being a pitiful mess. And so you come and you praise him and you're rich. He's saying, no, you're not. You're poor. You're broke. And then he says, you're blind. In other words, you don't see Jesus. You're so large in your own eyes that you can't see Jesus. You can see everybody's faults but your own. Your heart is filled with judgment, accusation, anger. You're blind. You can't see how I see. You can't see with the eyes of heaven. You don't even know you're wretched. And then he makes one last statement, and it's absolutely the clincher. You're naked. You're naked. You are open to everyone's view that you don't even have any clothes to wear. Now, I don't know about you, but this descriptor just cuts me right to the heart. I don't want to be identified as this person. But you know what? This is where we all are as we come out of the world. This is a description of a people who are in the world who do not know Jesus. And what's tragic about this description is that these people think they belong to Jesus. But in fact, these descriptors are the same as if you were pagan. Now, he has some counsel for us, some very specific direction that we must walk through if this condition is to be changed in our lives. He begins, I counsel you to buy. Right up front, you know that the counsel of Jesus is going to cost you. This is not going to be stop by and pick up the free gift. It's going to be expensive. You can't be a cheapskate with Jesus. It's going to cost you. That's what he meant when he said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. There's a cost Listen to what he says. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. He's talking about a transformation that must happen in our lives. And that transformation comes about as we're thrust into the desert. You look all through scripture and what God did was begin to take people he loved into the desert. Children of Israel, he takes them out of Egypt and he sends them into the desert. And in the desert, he feeds them manna and they get sick of it and they want chicken and they want fish. I was sitting in a restaurant last night over at the bistro and two men came in. This was the first time they'd been at the bistro. The waiter came to the table and and the waiter said, what would you like? And one man had not even looked at his menu. He didn't even open it. He just said, I want chicken. That's it. I want chicken. 
Well, there's nothing wrong with chicken, except this is a, a French country restaurant, and French country, they don't eat much chicken. They have wonderful fish dishes that they specialize in. They have wonderful steaks. They have wonderful lamb dishes. Chicken, rubber chicken. That's what he wanted. So very carefully, kindly, the waiter explained, we have two chicken dishes. And he described them as best he could. And I'm sitting there saying, get the lamb shank. Had no clue. They came in ignorant, just give me chicken. And they're sitting in one of the top 100 restaurants in America. Just give me chicken. I thought, this man, he doesn't understand where he's at. He doesn't understand what's available. He always eats chicken. So he goes to a first-class restaurant. What would you like, sir? Well, I just want chicken. Now, please, if you love chicken, there's nothing wrong with chicken. But in a fine restaurant with white tablecloths and silver and china, and you don't even look at their menu, you just say, chicken, what do you have that's chicken? That so reminded me of the Christians I've seen who just come to Jesus and just want chicken, rubbery chicken. The Lord Jesus knows that if he's going to begin doing a work in our hearts to change us and transform us, he's going to have to get us away from what we're accustomed to, and we're going to have to follow him out into the desert. We're going to have to allow him to begin to take away those things that are our comforts. He's going to say, turn off the movies, turn off the video games. He's going to have to say, get out of the internet, don't live in it. He's going to have to say, get out of your cell phones, get off Facebook. He's going to have to begin to isolate us. Some of you in this congregation today are on Facebook. More and more research is coming out that shows that a person who is on Facebook is more unhappy than a person who is not on it. That Facebook is basically voyeurism. It is living through other people's lives, and it causes depression and isolation. It's one of the great lies of our culture that you have intimacy with people who are on your, on your Facebook page. You don't. We're going to have to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit in letting go of the worldly luxuries that keep us asleep. And we're going to have to recognize that there is a journey through the wilderness that we have to take. The children of Israel died in the desert. There is no guarantee that once you enter into the desert, you're going to come out alive. You may die there. For 40 years, they wandered in the desert, and all but two died there. And it was the children born in the desert who never saw the flesh pots of Egypt that went into the promised land. Now, the desert creates an atmosphere in our hearts where anger grows in our spirit. The children of Israel were constantly becoming angry with God and with Moses. Why? Because they could not have what they thought they wanted. They couldn't have the food they wanted. They couldn't have the relationships they wanted. They could not have all they wanted to have in the desert. And so they became increasingly angry with God. Now, the reason they died in the desert was that they refused to believe and trust 
in the Lord God of heaven. Instead, they kept demanding that they trust in their physical provision. So the desert time is an intense time of testing in our hearts to see whether or not we will submit to Jesus or whether we are going to demand to have our own way. Now, if you look at 1 Peter, the first chapter, verses 6 and 7, 1 Peter, the first chapter, I'll begin with verse 6. In this you are greatly re- in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed so the trials The desert journey has the purpose of refining our hearts and finding out whether we will walk in bitterness and anger at our experience and whether we will rebel against the Lord or just settle into an attitude of, I am bitter with the Lord. I don't like how he's treated me, but he's God, so I'll serve him. That's an absolute dead-end place. We've gone into the desert. Jesus was led into the desert for 40 days. He he did not go to Jerusalem. We would expect that Jesus to be baptized would immediately head to the temple in Jerusalem and start his ministry with a bang. No, he went to the desert for 40 days where he fasted, prayed, and was tempted by the devil. We're not going to escape being tempted by the devil. And we're not going to escape with our pride intact. The desert is meant to break our anger and our pride, to turn us toward Jesus in humility, with praise and glory and honor to his name. And there are many lessons we must learn in this journey in the desert. The most vital lesson, the most vital lesson of the journey in the desert for the children of Israel was to learn not to turn away from him to never turn aside from him. And all of us are always tempted to turn aside from God in despair. I might as well just die. Or I wish you would die. So you'd get out of my hair and I can have the life I want. It's not uncommon between a husband and a wife for the husband or the wife to say, I want a divorce. Or to say, I just wish you'd die and get out of my face. I've heard People say this many times. I've even said it. It's an immature, foolish, childish evidence that either you are new to the desert walk and this needs to be processed through your soul, or it says you've been there a while and you're really hard-headed. And Jesus will keep you in the desert as long as he needs to keep you there. You will not advance. You will not pass go and collect $200 until you have been dealt with in the desert, that finally your anger is broken, your pride is removed, you are humble and malleable in your heart so that Jesus can speak to you and fulfill the next two steps that he's eager to give to you. Now, if you would look also, I won't turn to it, but you can jot it down. Job 23.10, he again likens faith to gold. 
there is a there is a gold that Jesus wants to refine in your heart, and he will use every circumstance to break the pride of your spirit. Now, some of you are making good progress in the desert. Others of you, I sometimes say, will you ever be ready to exit the desert? Are you going to die in the desert? And the point of my prayer life is often for those of you who are stumbling in the desert with bitterness and anger and pride. It is essentially about selfishness of heart. The selfishness of heart has to be broken in the desert. It can't be broken any other place. Until we recognize our absolute dependence upon Jesus and we're willing to lay down all that we think we know, please hear me, the most dangerous part of our mind is what we think we know. Because out of what we think we know, we establish all kinds of expectations. I know how my wife should behave. I know how my husband should behave. And I'm not going to be shy to tell him how he should behave. Are you kidding me? It's pride. It's arrogance. It's control. We were not called by Jesus to exercise authority and control over one another. Jesus said, among the Gentiles, they glory over others. But among you, let him who is least be the greatest among you. We... We don't, in Jesus Christ, walk in pride. So Jesus is doing this work in our hearts. And in one sense, we never get out of the desert. You understand that? There is a sense in which we never exit the desert because as soon as we begin to walk back into pride and arrogance, we're right back there. It's the discipline of God. And we have to decide that bitter root, is it going to be cut and pulled out of us to the very bottom, or are we going to continue to maintain that we're victims, that it's not fair, that God shouldn't treat us this way, and everybody else should know we're somebody important? Humility of heart is what the desert brings to us. Gentleness of heart. And you put one person in the desert fire, and it only makes them harder and tougher. Jesus said a number of times in the Old Testament, I've refined you like like silver. I've refined you like gold. I keep putting you in the fire, but you would not. You refused. So God can put us in the fire. He can put us in the desert. And we can stay there for years and only become harder and tougher and never allow Jesus to break through and refine us. And then we never advance in the kingdom of God. There is an easy way and there is a hard way. And most of us choose the hard way. And so we're in the desert sometimes for years. I've been in the desert now for 40 years. I'm praying that I can soon exit. Some of you have been in the desert five or six or seven years. And God has done such an astonishing work in your heart and in your life. The only reason he sends us to the desert is because he loves us and he wants to change us into his likeness. It's not done as punishment. It's done as discipline, training. Now he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. The second step is, I counsel you to buy from me 
white clothes to wear so that you can cover your nakedness. The white clothing is very clear. It's righteousness. If you look at the book of Revelation again in the 19th chapter, I'll begin with verse 7 through 8. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. That's coming out of the desert. That's coming out of the desert where we have been humbled before God, where we recognize our nakedness, where we see our desperate need. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So we are given righteous acts. We do not produce them out of the work of the law. It has come to us as a gift from Jesus Christ. It's clear in the book of Romans that it is Jesus who circumcises our hearts. It is not by works, it is by grace, it is by faith. We are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. But now we have to recognize that the task of our heart as we begin to emerge from the desert fire is that righteousness must be built into our lives. That everything of darkness must be utterly cast off and put away. Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Right? And then we pray, God, would you do this for me and would you do that for me? Well, no. I'll do my will for you. And suddenly we're faced with the reality is, is our heart proud? And do we get mad when God doesn't answer the prayer we thought we wanted him to answer? The Lord's prayer is without a doubt the most dangerous prayer in all of Scripture. It's praying that God's will will be done in our heart and not ours. And the reason we enter into the desert was because we wanted our will to be done. And we wanted God to do for us what we wanted him to do for us. And we wanted the luxury of life to flow according to our will. And when it didn't, we got angry. And we cursed men and we cursed women and we struggled with our wives and our husbands. We struggled with our kids. We want it our way. And then we come to our Father, who art in heaven. Holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So we begin to pray, thy will be done. And his will is to give us righteous acts. His will is to give us righteousness. So what righteousness does he want to give us? Total and complete love for God total and complete love for each other. Love to God and love to man is a fulfillment of the law. He wants the law to be fulfilled in our hearts. So it means we don't live in anger. We don't kill. Jesus said, if you're angry with your husband or your wife, you've murdered them. If you're angry with your children, you've murdered them. If you're angry with your boss, you've murdered him. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not kill. That's what it says. So we have to deal then with the reality of the murderous rage that rises up in our heart. That's why we're in the desert. And now he's saying, okay, make a covenant with me. Enter into covenant with me. 
stand by faith that I will remove the anger from your heart, that I will remove the wall that you put up to protect yourself. I will remove that wall from your heart. The depression that rolls in on your head is only anger turned upside down. The cold indifference of your heart towards someone is just anger. Oh, I don't care what, I don't care what happens. Well, yes, you do. But it's not going to go your way, so you're just going to protect yourself with a wall of indifference. I don't care what they do. They can do whatever they want to do. I'm out of here. You know, some of us guys were raised as leavers. You know, my late wife, she was not a leaver. She was a fighter. I'll never forget one night I got up and left. And she shouted after me, you coward. <laughs> Man, I spun around. I said, are you kidding me? I'll fight with you. Oh, and we had a knockdown drag out. <laughs> and then we had a lot of fun making up. You know, the fun of fighting is making up. But I learned with Jan the wonderful gift of grace through Jesus to not walk away, to not be a lever, to not shout and yell and cuss and run. We're called to put on righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus will give to us so that we're no longer naked people, but we're covered by his righteousness. We're clothed in the garments of his righteousness. And this is very practical stuff. I'm not going to lie. Some of you lie as easily as you tell the truth. Not big lies. You know, just comfortable lies to slide by the conflict so that you don't have a fight. Oh, no, hon. I didn't mean that. Of course you meant that. But you don't want to have a fight. So, no, I didn't mean that. Lying, bearing false witness, stealing, murdering. The Lord wants the law to be totally fulfilled in our hearts. He wants to make us righteous. He wants to clothe us. Now, please, can I tell you, this takes some growing up. This takes some maturing. Some of you worship your intellect. You can argue both sides of the case with great freedom. Righteousness does not come by intellectual knowledge. Righteousness comes from crucifixion in the desert. Righteousness comes, you understand what the word righteousness means. In the Greek, it just means innocent. Just innocent. It's a simple word. Intellectual knowledge does not bring righteousness. Submission to Jesus and allowing him by covenant to enter into our hearts and transform us. That's what brings innocence. The innocence belongs to Jesus. And he's willing to come in and shape and mold our hearts so that our outward actions do not deny him so that we can live in peace and joy and love. We're headed into Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is always one of the toughest times of the year because you have to be with extended family, but you're not giving gifts, so you can't buy off anybody. You've just got to face the reality, this is the family I have. And when family gets together, they may have been avoiding each other for a bit and have judgments in their heart about each other. And somehow around the Thanksgiving table, those things can come rushing out with statements of latent anger and judgment and accusation. 
dad didn't do enough for me, or mom didn't do this right, or son didn't do that. Or So Thanksgiving can become a time of collecting on old accounts. You know, the desert time was meant to break those old accounts and to bring us into full repentance and to bring us into full humility of heart, to bring us into a place of peace and joy and life because Jesus rules in our heart. So the second step that Jesus wants to do for us, again, there's another passage of Scripture that I have had underlined for many years in my Bible with check marks beside it. Psalm 118, I will not die but live and will, pro- and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. He's chastened you with a car. He's chastened you with money. He's chastened you with family members. He's chastened you with your husband or your wife. He's chastened you with the business and the employment. He's allowed every kind of circumstance to come into your life to refine you. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And then Psalm 118, verse 19. Open for me the gates of righteousness, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. You can only enter into heaven through the gate of righteousness. I wish it were the gate of emotion. And I could say, Jesus, I love you. 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 Now let me into heaven. You don't get into heaven with emotion. You get into heaven by entering through the gate of righteousness. You notice it's not the gate of judgment. It's the gate of innocence, where we become innocent one with another. And the church becomes safe to be with, because there's no longer hostility and judgment and hardness of heart. Bitterness has departed from the body, from the marriage. Accusations are gone from the marriage. The D word is never mentioned again. And I urge all of you married couples to do what Jan and I had to do finally. We had to say in a time of peace, we make a covenant with one another to never again use the D word. That's it. Never again will we threaten divorce. No matter how we feel, we will not use the D word. You know, they say that cursing shows you how dumb a person is because they lack the vocabulary to talk about the issues without using cursing. Well, I think the same of the D word. It just shows how dumb you are because you have an inability to express yourself. And so you have to threaten. And if you live in that dumbness, I urge you today, make a covenant with Jesus and make a covenant with your wife or your husband to never use that term again. Because God didn't put people together to break them apart. Marriage is for life. And marriage for you may be a desert. It may be where God has to begin to deal with your heart because marriage touches the innermost strings of a person's soul. And nobody gets madder quicker than when somebody reaches into the heart, past the defenses, and begins to play on the harp of our heart, especially if we don't like the tune. 
God uses marriage in the most miraculous way to test the human heart, to determine whether or not you are willing to sacrifice your life and stop being selfish. Marriage breaks selfishness or makes it greater and greater and the D word comes into play. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. And would you all do me a favor? Just a quick aside. Would you be talking to David Sampson and saying, David, it's time for you to preach. He needs a little encouragement. He's the one who really opened for me the understanding of verse 19. Open for me the gates of righteousness. When he broke through in that understanding, it totally transformed David's life. He began to pray. He began to fast in a desperate situation. Don't, he didn't pray, deliver me from the pain. He prayed, oh God, open for me the gates of righteousness. And God opened for him the gate of righteousness and utterly, totally transformed both he and his wife. The second most dangerous prayer to the Lord's prayer is this prayer. Open for me the gates of righteousness. Because he will begin to open those gates and you'll see why you can't enter in. And great sadness will come in your heart because of how you abuse those around you. How the hardness of your heart is so evident. And you'll begin to see your nakedness. And you'll be ashamed. And you'll say, I can't walk this way, Jesus. Open for me the gates of righteousness. For until that gate is open for you, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, there is a third step that we have. I counsel you to buy salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. This salve was produced and marketed out of Laodicea all over Asia. This salve... If you'll look with me, you'll find it in John the 14th chapter. John the 14th chapter. And I'll begin reading with verse 15. John verse 14. This is the gospel of John, beginning with verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The salve is the ability to see so that we are no longer blind. It is the spirit of God, but it is specifically the spirit of truth. No deception. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you will know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. You want to see Jesus? You want Jesus to talk to you, then you're going to have to know the spirit of truth. And you're going to have to buy the salve. And to buy the salve, you're going to have to survive in the desert and allow the anger and bitterness of your heart to be utterly broken. 
You're going to have to walk humbly before God. You're going to have to be full of faith that Jesus will do exactly what he's promised to do, and he will carry you through. And as you walk in that faith, and you submit to him, and you trust him, and you give up your own way, and you walk in Jesus, in your humility, you then are called to walk in righteousness, to stop the evil behavior, to stop the evil behavior. And as you walk increasingly into the righteousness of Jesus, he will speak to you more and more plainly. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. We are called to lay our lives on the altar of burnt offering as a living sacrifice, as a living martyr. Jesus' intention for your life is that you would walk in fellowship with Jesus in such an intimate way that you can test, approve, and know what his will is in every situation. But you cannot know that if you're walking in wickedness before God, if you're beating up your brother, your sister, your wife, or your husband, or your kids. You can't know it. Instead, you'll just go off intellectual knowledge, and you'll be blind and naked and miserable, and everything unhappy in the world will happen to you, and your life will be filled with drama. You know what? I'm sick of drama, and I'm sick of drama queens. I want to walk honestly and truthfully with an open and gentle heart in Jesus Christ, and I don't want to sin against him, and I don't want to sin against you. I want to walk in loving fellowship with you, and I want to walk in such a way with Jesus and with you that I know the presence of Jesus dwelling in my heart, And I know beyond question what he wants me to do because he speaks to me. It always encourages my heart when I'm speaking with a brother or sister here. And that brother or sister will say, have you been praying for so-and-so? Yes. Well, as I've been fasting and praying for them, this is what I hear we need to pray for. And suddenly the church begins to pray strategically for a brother or a sister. And salvation now can come to that person because the church, walking in righteousness before God, the church with the ISAB of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, no more games, straight up. We can begin to strategically pray for each other and have our prayers heard and answered in the heavenly realm. God will hear and answer our prayers if we're innocent before him. If we're still lying and cheating and stealing, still walking in anger and bitterness and judgments, accusation, self-pride lifting us up, Jesus is not going to talk to us. He's going to leave us in the desert until we decide to get serious with him. There is a journey. It is called Pilgrim's Progress. It's a journey through these three steps. There's so much more I'd like to unfold today, but I won't. You might want to read carefully, though, John, the 15th chapter. John 15, in closing, says that if you do not bear the fruit of righteousness in your life, you will be cut off and cast out and burned. I don't want that for any of you. I want you to be connected to the vine. I want your heart to be in harmony with your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I want you to be able to go to Thanksgiving dinner this week and be a testimony of Jesus' love and grace and mercy. I'm going to be with family this week, 
And frankly, some of that family is still pretty angry with me. They say I've become a religious fanatic. They're scared to death I'm going to talk about Jesus on Thanksgiving. If I don't talk about Jesus, I won't have anything to say about anything because he's all I can talk about. He's the lover of my soul. He's the focus of my life. It's what I'm grateful for. So how can I go and love these precious ones with such overwhelming love that they'll want to hear words about Jesus? That's my challenge this week. Please pray for me. If you've caught what I've said today, it will cause tear in your hearts because this is the journey of grace. Don't run from it. Let Jesus bring to pass all he wants in you. He loves you and his spirit wants to come and dwell in us, but he won't dwell in a body separated. He won't live in his room and leave us alone in our room. The Holy Spirit will not come in and be a roommate with us. He comes in and takes over the house and you move out. It's time to move out of our houses. Let Jesus move in. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful to you for this work of grace that you are accomplishing in our hearts. I'm so grateful, Jesus, that you've been plain and clear and above board with us about what you're trying to accomplish in our salvation. And Lord, my heart is so grateful. And I renounce every wicked way, every wicked thought. Lord, I covenant to walk with you through the gates of righteousness. Thank you, Lord. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. With great joy Now unto him who is able To keep you from falling And to present you blameless Before the presence of his glory